And we're in 1 Thessalonians today, if you have a Bible with you, 1 Thessalonians, uh, one of Paul's earliest letters, perhaps the earliest, maybe the second, but early on and very important. And in the second half of chapter 1 today, we get um, a passage that is exemplary on many fronts. Examples abound. They're multi-layered. Those who follow the example of others become examples themselves. Or we could say the imitators become the imitated. And so I've been pondering this week the complexity of following others, of having examples, of being examples. I've been pondering that pull that's within all of us to imitate those who seem impressive. And perhaps the fear that many of us have of following the wrong thing, the wrong one, or even being the wrong one, being an example to others and letting them down. Many of us fear that. When I was a kid growing up in the 80s, I remember Charles Barkley, the NBA player, was rather infamous for rejecting any responsibility to be an example or a role model to kids. Well, conversely, around the same time, Nike was running an ad campaign around Michael Jordan, and the slogan was, I want to be like Mike. That's how the commercial went. I want to be like Mike. And Jordan seemed to revel in being imitated. Kids seem to revel in imitating Michael Jordan, not just with the shoes, but with that signature tongue stuck out whenever he was about to do something amazing. And yet not everything that Jordan did is worth imitating. I'm sure very few moms have said to their junior high sons, I hope you grow up to have a a gambling career like Michael Jordan has. I'm sure very few moms said, as they watched that Hall of Fame speech he gave. Son, I hope you grew up one day to be as vindictive and petty and small as that man. And if you've never seen his Hall of Fame speech, just Google it. I'm not being too hard on the man. It is indeed quite sad. In the church, things can be almost just as precarious when it comes to examples in following and leading Some, no doubt, seek to establish a cult of personality around them. Some are unashamed fanboys of this preacher or that preacher. On the other hand, some are distrustful of everyone around them for fear of being let down and disillusioned. On the other extreme, there are some who are arrogant and proud and would think that they never need anyone to lead the way or show them how it's done. And others would think it's just the mark of humility to refuse any example, to refuse being any example to anyone. In fact, some would think it sounds just downright prideful to even hint that we might be able to show someone something we've done, something we've learned, something that we're growing in. But when it comes to the Bible, 
Yes, Jesus is indeed the supreme and perfect example, and we follow him. But there is this category of imperfect saints being worthy examples for us to follow, for us to model after. Over a dozen times in the New Testament, we find a command either to be an example or to follow someone's example, to be imitators of this person or of that thing. And the truth is, we need examples. The truth is that it's in us to imitate, even if we like to think we're above it. We, we do pick up the habits of those we're around, for better or worse. It is true, what we behold, we are becoming like. That's the title of a book by G.K. Beale, a professor at Westminster Seminary. What we behold, we become. Tuck that principle away, we'll come back to it. But that's what we find in the second half of 1 Thessalonians 1. Yes, indeed, our eyes must first and foremost behold Jesus and become like him, but we should also watch and follow those who are also beholding Jesus and increasingly becoming more like him. So let me read verses 5 to 10 of 1 Thessalonians 1. Picking up in the middle of a sentence here, verse 5, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. What we saw last week as we began a study of this letter, that Paul began his letter to the Thessalonian Christians with thankfulness for things he had observed himself, but even more what he had just gotten reported from Timothy, who had been with the Thessalonians Paul spoke in verse 3 of their faith that was being worked out and their love which produced labor for the Lord and for others and the hope which led to a, a steadfastness, a steadiness, a solidness. And all that was proof, he said in verse 4, of God's loving election and proof that the gospel, when it was proclaimed to them, was no bare word. It was no mere human word. When the gospel came to them, verse 5, it came in power, in the Holy Spirit, and brought full conviction. And now this week we see Paul, as he wants these Christians to see that their work of grace, God's work of grace in them, is genuine 
at least in part, because of who it came to them from, Paul and Timothy and Silas. So first, we're going to see an exemplary demonstration of the gospel in the second half of verse 5. You know, he writes, what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. If the first half of verse 5 is about the declaration of the gospel, and it is, then the second half is about the demonstration of the gospel. And they go hand in hand, don't they? And really, the one, the declaration, really is the logical prior thing. It's the one that is absolutely necessary. You see, there's no salvation for anyone without the declaration of the gospel. That's what gospel is. It's news. It's information. It's not just observation of those who live a different life. That's the demonstration of the gospel, but no one ever gets saved merely from a demonstration of the gospel. No, they need to hear what Jesus did for them, and that is backed up or substantiated or demonstrated in people, ideally, who are known and are observable, and they've been changed by this gospel that they proclaim. To just break it down a little phrase at a time in the second half of verse 5. You know, Paul writes, you, you know this, you saw this, you observed this. You know what kind of men, what kind of men we proved to be among you. We were with you. We, we were interacting with you. We were together. And all this was for your sake. So Paul and Silas and Timothy apparently didn't fly in on a Learjet, give the gospel, and fly out the next day. They shared life with these people. They cared for them and demonstrated their care. Now we'll see next week in chapter 2 some specifics of their care in their life together. Here this week we just see the principle. But by way of application for us, let me ask a few questions. Are there those in your life who would have good reason to think that the gospel isn't true because of your negative example? Now, I don't mean, are there those in your life who know that you, you sin or they've seen you do some things? But I mean, hypocrisy to the level that it, it sort of invalidates your gospel witness. If so, what, what needs to change? Maybe acknowledge to that non-Christian friend exactly what's going on and ask for him to encourage you to be even a better example of Christ to him or her. Another question would be, are we seeking out these kind of gospel-focused relationships? Paul was among them. Are we seeking out those kind of relationships? And are there relationships, gospel-oriented relationships, which now over a course of many months or years, we've taken too long to actually get to the gospel? It doesn't say in Acts 17, which records Paul in Thessalonica, that he got there and lived among them for a couple of years, and then on year three, he finally decided to give them this gospel. No, it's the gospel and life together, and so we have to wonder whether sometimes what we might call lifestyle evangelism 
is just lifestyle without evangelism. That's the demonstration of the gospel. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy are a great example for us. Secondly, there's an exemplary reception of the gospel in verse 6 and 7. The Thessalonians, some of them, received the gospel. Verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word, the gospel, in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. You see the examples abounding here? Paul, Silas, and Timothy were exemplary in their declaration of the gospel, in their demonstration of the gospel. The Thessalonians were exemplary in receiving the gospel like they did, and the way they received the gospel and under such circumstances meant that they were a model or an example to others in the surrounding regions because they received this gospel in much affliction but with joy in the Holy Spirit. You, you see the juxtaposition. They received it in affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. And thus they were imitating Paul and the Lord Jesus. Now the Lord Jesus didn't need to receive the gospel like we sinners do. But we can think of his suffering and even joy in relation to his testimony of the word and the word that he came to fulfill. He was born in suffering. He was born on the run, we could say, as we read about Herod trying to wipe out the one who was called the king of the Jews. Growing up, his brothers didn't believe him. For a time, his mother didn't believe who he said he was. His own people rejected him. You just read page after page in the gospel accounts of maligning, opposition, resistance, mockery, eventually false accusations, betrayal, denial, arrest, an unjust trial, beatings, spitting upon, more mockery, and eventually crucifixion. So if anyone in all the world has ever known much affliction, as Paul puts it here, it's the Lord Jesus. And yet, Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, he had joy set before him when he went to the cross. Not that he enjoyed the cross, no, by no means, but he knew what was on the other side. And so there was joy set before him in the path towards and through the cross. You think of Paul's phenomenal example of receiving the word in much affliction. You think of his conversion in Acts chapter 9 when he was headed to Damascus to arrest, imprison, and likely have killed any Christians he could find. And it's there that the Lord Jesus met him. He knew instantly. This means the resurrection's true. This means what he's opposing is opposing God. And he believed in the Lord Jesus, and he would never be the same. But humanly speaking, he lost all that he knew. All friends, all societal connections, 
Everything he knew, his, his job, his, what he perceived to be his calling up until that point, it was all gone. It all changed. You read through the book of Acts and you see story after story. Paul goes into a city, he proclaims the gospel. Some people believe it, some people reject it. And those people who reject it usually stir up trouble. It often leads to Paul being beaten and eventually thrown out of the city. In fact, before he arrived in Thessalonica, in chapter 17 of Acts, he was in Philippi in chapter 16. And we read this. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. They brought them to the magistrates. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore their garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Much affliction, great joy in the Holy Spirit. You probably know it was then that an earthquake happened and a Philippian jailer was saved that night. In short time, a church was born there in Philippi, and Paul and Silas left, and again, they went on down the road to Thessalonica. Those new Christians in Thessalonica no doubt knew of what Paul went through in Acts 16. They certainly saw what these people went through in their own city in Acts 17. Nevertheless, the Thessalonians were persuaded, it says, and they joined them. They followed suit. They followed the example of Jesus and Paul and his men. They received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. It certainly wasn't convenient for them to become Christians. It wasn't an easy thing, humanly speaking, or culturally speaking. We'll see that when we get to verse 9, that they turned to God from idols. We'll see what that meant and what it cost. And yet, though the cost was great, because it was true salvation, because it was Holy Spirit-wrought salvation, there was also Holy Spirit joy provided in the midst of their affliction. And this was an example to all believers. It's an example to current believers in Macedonia and Achaia because that odd but true relationship between affliction and joy is actually something that carries through, not just conversion, but into the Christian life. So James can tell us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So this is something for us as Christians. We keep receiving the word, in great affliction, with great joy, because of promises that lie ahead, and because of the goodness of God even now. Thirdly, there's an exemplary dissemination of the gospel in verses 8 and 9. A dissemination. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. You see, their conversion 
to Christ was not only an example to others since they received that message in affliction with great joy, but they proclaimed this Christ they've come to believe and proclaimed him far and wide. Macedonia was the Roman providence that contained the city of Thessalonica. So think Albuquerque, then New Mexico. You think Desert Springs. Perhaps it would be said of us, the gospel has sounded forth from you into New Mexico. And here it says, Achaia of them, that was the Roman province south of Macedonia. Perhaps we would say, the gospel has sounded forth from this place into Mexico or Guatemala or into Colorado. For them, this is all very remarkable. These are fairly new Christians. And surely Paul told them once they were converted that this is what Christians do. Christians get the gospel and give the gospel. They pass it along. It's like a, a glorious game of, um, what's that called? Phone tag or something? You pass it around and it's supposed to get messed up as you pass a story around a room. But this story hasn't been messed up. We're still receiving the same gospel and passing it along and passing it along. And they received it from Paul and Silas and Timothy, believed it, and they passed it along. The word of the Lord sounded forth from them. It sounded forth here is a Greek word only used this place in the New Testament, nowhere else. And it means sounding forth like an echo, like a, it's used of a, a loud bell that is rung or like a thunder which rolls and, and, and claps or like a loud trumpet that is blown and you hear the reverberation through the canyons. That's how the word of the Lord went forth from them. That's how it should be for every Christian in every church. This is commanded of us all. Matthew Luke, John, they all end with what we call great commissions. We're to go into the world and make disciples. We're supposed to tell. We're all, in a sense, farmers who have seed in our hand, the seed of the gospel, and we're to spread it and spread it and spread it and trust Jesus to bear fruit and do the rest. This is what the book of Acts is all about. But it's not just commanded, but it's also shown to be this thing of compulsion, it's instinctive. It's a can't help it kind of thing. In Acts 4, when the disciples are threatened about disseminating this gospel of Jesus in Jerusalem, they say to the magistrates, you do what you got to do. But as for us, we cannot help but speak the things which we've heard and seen. You've ever heard or seen something that you cannot help but talk about? Something you didn't see coming, something that's shocking. Perhaps, you know, earlier this last week, the news of Kobe Bryant's death, you go to work the next day, did you hear? You're talking about it. Can you, can you believe it? What's it like for that mom and, and those kids? Well, the things that we hear and seen that have seen that are, that are breathtaking, whether for bad or for good, we, we tend to not be able to not talk about those things. And I wonder if, as Christians, we've wrongly gotten used to the gospel. 
We've yawned over it so much that we've heard and seen some awesome things, but we're used to it, and it, we, we've lost the can't help it that the early church used to have. Every church, every Christian should work towards the dissemination of the gospel, both in their own backyards, in their own circles of influence, and around the world. Fourthly, there is an exquisite summary of the faith in the last couple of verses of chapter 1. And I say the faith here as opposed to the gospel as I've worded it in the previous points because the faith, I think, is arguably larger than speaking of just the gospel. The faith is the whole thing. It's what we believe. It's, it's our testimony. It's our story. It's what we're expecting. And if you notice, this summary in verse 9 and 10 has to do with these people's conversion and parts of the Christian life and even the consummation of all things when Jesus returns. It's summarizing a lot of stuff, a big thing, and it summarizes it in an exquisite way. It's reported, Paul writes, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Charles Spurgeon called this the Christian's biography. This is our story. This is the faith. And let me highlight four verbs that we find in these verses. The first is turning. Turning. They turned to God from idols. And they indeed had idols to turn from in order to turn to God. The majority of these Thessalonian Christians were thoroughly Greco-Roman Gentiles. And like any other major Roman city, they worshipped the whole pantheon of Roman gods. Too countless in number to even list. Uh, Aphrodite and Zeus and Artemis, Apollo, Isis, Serapis, on and on. In Thessalonica, there was even a temple dedicated to the pantheon of Egyptian gods, as if the Roman gods were not many enough. Mount Olympus, which was home to Zeus, it was thought, was just 50 miles away from Thessalonica and visible from that city. Of course, wherever you lived in the Roman world, Caesar was believed to be a god, who was to be worshipped, that was stamped on the Roman coins. And worship of Caesar and the pantheon of these gods was actually, in their days, bound up in the cultural and economic fabric of their society in a way that's difficult for us to comprehend. And so I quote from G.K. Beale again, who helps us understand this. He says, in these days in the Roman world, there was a guild for every trade. So guild, think, um, think in terms of a union or a, a trading society. There was a guild for almost every trade, and most people involved in any economic activity belonged to one guild or another. Since all the guilds had patron deities, 
Guild members would be expected to pay homage to pagan gods at official guild meetings, which were usually festive occasions often accompanied with gross immoral behavior. Non-participation would lead to economic ostracism. So imagine a world where all of our grocery stores in Albuquerque require for you to purchase anything, require you to participate in sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. And you say, oh, that's all right, I know a farmer's market, or I know some guy who grows some stuff in his backyard. No, you're missing it. They were outside the system as Christians. To be outside the system then, as another New Testament scholar puts it, It was a challenge to the social fabric. It was a threat to the cultural continuity in economic stability. So consider their cost of turning and breaking with the system. But that's what repentance is. This is the word for repentance. To repent is to turn. No matter the cost, sometimes it's great, sometimes it's less. But repentance is a turning, a turning from and a turning to. In order to turn to the true and living God, that's what faith is, there must be a turning from something, whatever, whatever else occupied that space before the true and living God was turned to. In other words, if I'm holding something over here, if I'm going to turn and grab something over here, I'm going to have to let go of this over there. If you're not a Christian, you have to understand that this is essential. This is what it means to come to Jesus. Faith and repentance go hand in hand. Repentance is the turning from, turning to, that's faith. That's embracing Christ and clinging to him. And so to come to Jesus, you, you must abandon well, whatever else it is or has been that has been your savior your God. But once you turn to him who is true and living, you're, you're turning away from what is false and fake and hopeless, and so it's good. It's not bad. So the second verb here is serving. Verse 9, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And notice the contrast between idols and God. The idols... They're plural. There are many, almost infinite in number in the Roman world. But God is one. And that one God is the true God implied the idols are false gods. This God is the living God implied is that idols are dead. They don't live. That reminds us of what we sang earlier from Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but don't speak, eyes but don't see. They have ears but they don't hear. They have noses but don't smell. They have hands but don't feel, feet but don't walk. They have mouths but they can't even make a sound. And those who make them become like them. There's that beholding, becoming principle. We become like what we behold. 
And so beholding, which means serving, gazing at, longing, seeking, beholding what is dead and lifeless, it just breeds more death. Beholding what is, what is false and empty, it just breeds more emptiness, hollowness, fakeness. Beholding the multitude of gods, well, it just makes us more scattered, distracted. And so we turn to the one and true living God to behold him and serve him. And how energizing it should be to think of serving the true and living God. To serve him is to obey him. It is to be committed to him. It is to have him before us. To serve the true and living God means we are not serving this idol that can do nothing Don't you sense the irony and the sarcasm in a passage like Psalm 115 or Isaiah 40 to 48 where it just keeps going and going and going where God mocks the idols. They can't do anything. They can't see anything. You pray to them, they don't hear anything. At the end of the day, if you're going to move, you've got to pick it up. It has feet, but it can't walk. It's stupid. But God isn't stupid. He's the true and living God. To serve the true God is to not have to doubt about whether it's worth it. To serve the living God means it's not, it's not stupid. He, he's alive. He's real. It's relational. We're in communion with him. And yet, because we don't serve God perfectly in this life as Christians, we have to keep turning throughout our whole Christian life. We keep Turning. There's a turning from and a turning to when we become Christians. And then every time we sin, there's another reminder. Oh, yep, we we went back, turned from it, turned to God. That's what repentance is. Martin Luther, in his 95 theses, had the first of his 95, the most important of them, that the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. Repentance. The Heidelberg Catechism, which was written not long after Luther's 95 Theses. It asks questions about the Christian faith, but it follows this outline. Three G's. Guilt, grace, gratitude. You see, this is like a chronological order of understanding God's ways. There's a logical order to this. We have to first understand our guilt. But then if we understand his grace, we receive it. We want to respond to that grace with gratitude. And yet it's not in a straight line. It's more like a circle. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Oh, that was, that was my Saturday and my Friday before and, and the Thursday before that. That's my every day. I fail I once again recognize my guilt apart from his grace, but I confess again that his grace is greater than my sin because his word tells me, it makes me thankful, and I want to live for him. I don't live for him perfectly. That's why I can't get off that train. Guilt, grace, gratitude. 
So we keep turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And as we do, let's recognize that idols aren't just statues that people light fires in front of. Those are real. Those are idols, indeed. I was in a restaurant on Thursday that had idols like that in it. But more common are what we might call idols of the heart. And this is in the Bible. Idols in the Bible can be real statues. And Paul can say in Galatians, no, Colossians 3.5 that greed is idolatry. So greed isn't a statue. Greed is a feeling. It's wanting more money. That's an, that's an idol. And so anything that we're tempted to love or trust or obey in the place of God, that is an idol. Which means that good things can become idols. Spouses, children, homes, bank accounts, retirement, you name it. Your education, these can indeed become idols that we trust, that we love, that we obey even or serve. And when good things become God-like things, there we have idolatry. And as common as it is, it's, it's, it's like the air we breathe, right? Where is idolatry in our culture? Everywhere. It should still be appalling to us. Jeremiah 2, there God speaks about his people turning to false gods. and He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and two, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So here we see that we we flee idols and serve the living and true God for our sake, for our own happiness, for our own satisfaction, not less for God's glory, but, but not least for our own good. And for our own satisfaction. He alone is the source of living water. And everything else is this pathetic cistern that's broken and it leaks and it fails. So we keep turning. We keep serving. We keep waiting. Verse 10. To wait for his son from heaven. And here we have a mega theme in the letters to the Thessalonians. The return of Jesus. Each of the five chapters of 1 Thessalonians ends on that theme. And much of chapters 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians are occupied with this theme. And here we have just a phrase to get us started at the end of chapter 1. Made me wonder if I was assigned to sit down and to begin to make a list of some of the key ingredients of the Christian faith, key beliefs, key hopes, how long would my list get before I would eventually get to the return of Christ and waiting for it? But as for Paul, it's, it's near the top of the list. I mean, this is right up there with serving God. 
Those who serve God are waiting for Jesus to return, longing for something more. They're not waiting idly. They're serving. They're working. But they're working not in hopes of reaching some sort of utopia of their own doing. No, our hopes are bigger than that. And so we're waiting, we're longing, we're anticipating. The conservative columnist Peggy Noonan, she once wrote, our ancestors believed in two worlds and understood this world to be the poor, nasty, and short one. We seem to be those who actually expect to find happiness here on earth. And our search for it has caused much more unhappiness. The reason? If you do not believe in another higher world, if you believe only in the flat material world around you, and if you believe that this is your only chance at happiness, then you are not just disappointed when the world doesn't give you a good measure of its riches, you despair. Well said. We Christians are not to be those who despair because we are those who are waiting. And so we have even now a category for this, this odd mixture of joy in the midst of affliction. The world doesn't have a category for that. We do. We get it. And yet we also have a category for needing more, wanting more, waiting for more than this present age has to offer. In fact, more positively, we can say we're waiting for Jesus, not just because this life is hard, but we're waiting for Jesus because we have great anticipation and excitement about what happens when he comes. We will be redeemed. That's the last verb of this exquisite summary, redeemed or delivered. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, before we understand deliverance, we have to first understand that there is wrath. There is wrath to come. Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, in chapter 1, he speaks of it, and it is breathtaking. He says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. There are some who believe and Jesus' return will be glorious. It'll be victory. It'll be the final rescue, ultimate redemption. It's what we've been waiting for. Those who will not believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they won't have that salvation in the final day. They'll meet God on that day in another way. Those who have no interest in the presence of the Lord will in the end get just that. God is just. He will not be mocked. There is wrath to come, but it doesn't have to face you. You don't have to face it. 
Jesus' return can be for you glory, rescue, redemption, deliverance. Because he whom God raised from the dead, verse 10 says, Jesus, he delivers us from the wrath to come. It's in his death and resurrection. Only the resurrection is mentioned here, but, but sometimes in Scripture, death is mentioned and, of course, implied is the resurrection that followed on the third day. Here, resurrection's mentioned, but it's not his resurrection alone that saves, as if you could be raised without dying. No, he died and was raised, just as Paul preached to these Thessalonians that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. It's in his death and resurrection that he delivers us from the wrath to come. He did it by bearing the wrath of God for those who would later come to believe and trust that it is true and good and right for them. That's why Jesus said from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cross wasn't merely an example of how to turn the other cheek when your enemies really got you pinned down. It was something cosmic. It was something judicial. He, he was the just in the place of the unjust, that God might be the justifier of the ungodly. You see, the payment for sin is death, and that's why Jesus died. I wonder if you've come to confess that, cling to it, put your eggs in that one basket, Come to drop whatever else you were clinging to as your hope for eternity and, and satisfaction. I wonder if it could be said of you today that you at some point, whether today or sometime before, that you turned to God from whatever idols or false gods were there before and you turned to him to serve the living and true God, to wait for Jesus, his son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Those Thessalonians one day began to be persuaded by this and follow it. They put their eggs in this one basket of Jesus. And what an example they've laid down for us. What an example you have if you're not yet a Christian. This is what you do. Do what they did. Do what Paul did that day when he began to believe in Jesus when he could do no other when faced with the resurrected Jesus. I wonder why not you? Do you think that you are a more unlikely candidate to become a Christian than Paul who was murdering Christians when he got saved? Do you think you're a more unlikely candidate today to become a Christian than those Thessalonians who were saturated in Roman paganism and idolatry? Those people who did not know another Christian before these three guys with the gospel came to town? They were persuaded. They believed. They were saved. They followed. You should do the same today. What a summary of our faith, right, believer? Fellow Christians, what a summary of our experience and our story and our hope that we've turned from what is false to him who is true because Jesus died and was raised. He'll deliver us from the wrath to come. And until he comes, we wait for him with eager anticipation and excitement. 
what an example that we have here in these Thessalonians for us in the Christian life to continue to receive the gospel with joy even in the midst of affliction, to live lives that are confirmations of the gospel, not perfectly so, but hopefully genuinely so, to be busy about the dissemination of the gospel in this world. How could we do otherwise when we've received so great a gift as the gospel ourselves? An anticipation of the fulfillment of this gospel when Jesus returns. What an example the Thessalonians are to us. And may we be that kind of example to others. May we look to each other for examples. May we encourage exemplary watchfulness and excitement as we wait our Savior who will one day come again. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, we thank you for your word and for the truth it contains. And we pray, Lord, it would be true for us in this room and more true all the time. We pray you'd use the Thessalonians' example, Lord, to encourage us wherever, wherever you find us, wherever we find ourselves today perhaps in doubt or in suffering, perhaps, Lord, lacking boldness to proclaim, perhaps loving this world too much or not longing for Jesus and his coming again. Wherever you find us, Lord, may you encourage us and strengthen us as we sing of our Jesus who bore our sins upon the cross and was raised in the third day. We pray in his name. Amen.